listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Does anybody ever struggle with doubt? Anybody struggle with doubt? Maybe you struggle with doubt in your marriage. Anybody ever think, man, does my, does my wife actually love me? For some of y'all, that's quite reasonable. I'm like, I'm like I don't know why. The, you know, I think that about myself. Why did Shannon ever marry me? So I struggle with doubt. Maybe you think that about your spouse. Maybe you think that about the government. We have plenty of reasons, and if you, depending on who you talk to, somebody's going to doubt the politician, or somebody's going to doubt the medical field. Uh, I always struggle with doubting vegetables or different things that are GMO-free. Do you ever see those things? You're like, is this really organic? Does anybody ever struggle with that? You struggle with doubt? Uh, do you ever doubt your eternal standing before God? Anybody there? Yeah, if we were honest, I'd say... From one time to another, we all doubt that. And you lay in bed and it's just like, man, if, if, I, if I don't wake up in the morning, where am I going to spend the rest of my life? Doubt is all around us. There was a study that came out this past week from the University of Michigan, and hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent so they could tell us that for every hot dog that you eat, you lose, on average, 36 minutes of your life. So, for me, I, I, I wasn't really scared about that because I can't stand hot dogs. And by the way, you're like, oh yeah, but we get all beef. This study was actually done with all beef hot dogs. No joke. And so if you're like, yeah, usually we get the Oscar Mayer. Listen, please, no, just don't do that. At least get the Hebrew Nationals because that way you only lose 36 minutes of your life. So I'm sitting there reading that study. I'm like, seriously, these are tax dollars at work. This is fantastic. But, but then I think, I kept reading the, re, the study in the report and there were some other things that you could eat to actually gain minutes on your life. And some of those things were like dried nuts, you know, vegetables, stuff like that. But one of the things, they actually said peanut butter and jelly sandwiches add 33 minutes onto your life. And I thought, well, praise God, I'm never going to die. <laughs> and I also thought, so let's just say I'm laying there on my deathbed. It's like, eat another peanut butter and jelly sandwich. As long as you do that, every 33 minutes, you can live forever. I was really encouraged by this. So for one of the few times in my life, I thought, yes, thank you. Thank you, University of Michigan. Thank you for spending all these ridiculous dollars on this. So, but even as I read that study and that report, I think, is this really true? And I, then I felt bad for a guy like Joey Chestnut, who has is, who is eaten thousands of hot dogs just in competition over the past few years, every 4th of July. I'm like, that dude's not going to make it to 50. I mean, he's just, every year, it's like, hey, let me see how many more months I can take off of my life. But we, we, we all struggle with doubt in different things. And here's what's crazy. As much as we all struggle with doubt in so many of these things, the way the culture has responded over the past 40, 50, 60 years has been to respond with an ever-increasing amount of doubt in our culture by saying, you know what? We can't really know absolute truth. So the problem has been, hey, we have doubt. And the culture has said, let's address that problem with more doubt. Because now, in order to find truth, what you do is you look inside of yourself. What do we want to express to everyone on social media, in the classroom? You want to express your truth. And if you disagree with somebody, it's just like, well, that, that's your truth. This is my truth. 
And then we have this whole modernism movement, which then started 40, 50 years ago with postmodernism. We can't really know truth. Truth can't really be known. But we decide to base our society on theories, which are unproven. You ever heard of the theory of evolution? So we have this theory. Here's, here's a theory about what happened. Let's base our society on this. We can't know truth. And so all around us, we are constantly searching for truth. We're struggling with doubt. I had somebody, I'm trying to sell my house in Locust Grove, if you want to buy it. But uh, I had somebody drive by a few weeks ago, right before the open house. And this lady, we were, we were talking, she wanted to see the house. And I was just like, I've got to have my agent here and all this stuff. And so we talked, she was real nice. Before she left my house, she handed me this card right here. She said, uh, and super nice lady, but she said, if you're ever wondering about, if you're ever struggling, she actually said this, if you're ever struggling with doubt or wondering about what all the issues in the world point to or what the future looks like, she said, do you ever struggle with that? I said, absolutely. I want to see where this conversation goes. <laughs> so uh, she said, you can go to jw.org. Now, some of you are like, huh, let me write that down. Do that with a very discerning eye, okay? And so she pointed me to the Jehovah's Witnesses website. And there it wants to answer all of my questions. So I, I put that on my, on my desk and I was like, I'm going to use that in a sermon one day. So this is for y'all. I was thinking about y'all even a few weeks ago. So you go to jw.org and it tries to answer all these questions to bring about some, some sort of answer. But, but what's crazy, once you start kind of digging into it, I, wanted, I, I didn't, I was busy. I wanted to keep asking her questions because even at the root of that, there are is very little certainty. Most of it is speculation. Many of the speculations they've made over the past few years haven't come true. Uh, I, was, uh, I received a text message a, a few weeks ago from a guy. He was, he's a teacher at a, a local Christian school, not the same one where I send my kids, but another one. And he was sitting in chapel and he said, uh, we had some of the students give testimonies this morning. He said, and I was about to raise Cain because one of our senior boys stood up and said, uh, let me tell you how I came to know about Jesus. I was looking inside myself and realized that I needed a savior. And he sends me some, you know, uh, funny memes. And he was, you know, some Chuck Norris type things. And, and he said, I, I couldn't handle it. He said, the spirit is the one who draws us. And I'm like, yes and amen. But, but oftentimes, even when we hear that, I had to look inside myself. You me tell you what you find when you look inside yourself? More of yourself. And so if we think, man, something is wrong, let me look inside myself. You want to know why you're looking in the first place? Because you understand that you're messed up. We don't look to ourselves for salvation. If we look to ourselves for anything, we realize there's a desperate need there. The student's testimony never had the work of Jesus as part of it. It never had anything to do with the scriptures. It had everything to do with that individual's intellect and their reasoning power to understand. But can I tell you, friends, religion says, here's how you can go up to God. Here's how you can attain a relationship with God. But the beautiful thing about a biblical faith is that it is the story of God coming down to us. God doesn't say, hey, come up to me. Do your best. Work real hard. No. Like we just saw in this video, like we're going to see through the book of Luke, the story of the good news of the gospel is the fact that you cannot do it. So our creator God condescended to us in the midst of our desperation and need. That is actually good news. 
So what we're going to see this morning, what I, what I, we're going to look at the, an intro to the book of Luke. Caleb read the first four verses. We're going to look at those. But the question I want you to answer for yourself is, is your faith, is it real? And you can say, well, my faith, is what you are placing your faith in, is it a biblical faith? Or is it some idea about maybe something you've heard? Is it a historical faith? Is it a verifiable faith? Does it not just make sense to you, but it's made sense for centuries? As we approach the word of God, I want us to come with a heart that is ready to hear and to respond. And if there's something that we, that we hear in the book of Luke over the next few months, and you're like, man, that kind of runs you know, against the grain of what I think I know, please repent of what you think you know and surrender to what we see in the scriptures. So we're going to be in the book of Luke. But as we start this book this morning, I want to answer a few questions about Luke. The first question is this, who is Luke? And so we begin with any good story, having to know kind of the characters. And so if you want to take pictures of this, that's fine. If you want to, uh, this is a little bit of an overview. We're going to be in this for a while. So I want us to know who is Luke. So Luke grew up as a Gentile. He did not grow up as a Jew. Those are the two primary options. We know that because the name Luke is a Gentile name. Luke was a companion to Paul, and we see the references there. I can't go with all these, but in Luke chapter 16 and verse number 10, he actually transitions from the, the, using the pronoun they, talking about here's what they did, to Luke joined Paul, and he goes to the pronoun we. And he says, this is how we function. He's a companion to Paul. Now notice that, that both of these guys are necessary. And so if God has gifted us in different ways. He's given the church both Paul's and he's given us Luke's. And so not all of us have to be Paul's. Like, hey, just go be the best Paul. You may be a Luke. You may be a companion to a Paul. Luke was with Paul when he was in prison. We see that through uh, those four chapters there in Acts 21, 22, 23, and 24. He was with Paul. Now, Luke was not actually in prison, but Paul was in prison for a couple of years, and he was under house arrest for some of that time. And Luke was right there with him as a really good friend. Think of this. Do you have a really good friend like that? who no matter what, that friend is going to be with you until the end. Well, this was Luke to Paul. Luke was a fellow worker. He was dependable. He was always there. Whatever you needed, Luke was there. He was there for Paul. And then lastly, Luke was a medical doctor. And uh, we see that kind of reference throughout. And, and this was really good news for Paul because Paul didn't live an easy life. Paul was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked three times, by the way. Not, you know, after that, I'd be like, all right, I'm not getting on any more boats. He was shipwrecked, bitten by a snake. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was in jail. He was spat upon. He was defecated on. And so Luke is right there as a medical doctor taking care of Paul. We also see from uh, other extra biblical sources like um, Ignatius, like Erasmus, like Eusebius, Josephus. Some of these, some of these guys who were writing about the time of the apostles early church fathers, early, early, first, second century church fathers, we know that Luke was actually, uh, he was saved a little bit later in life. He knew a lot of the other apostles by being in those circles. He came to faith and then he joined up with Paul as a result of that. He had to raise money to go on these trips with Paul. It wasn't, it, this is not like a, you know, four-year cruise. He had to raise money. He was probably pretty wealthy being a medical doctor, so he had some money. And we know that he, uh, according to extra biblical sources, we know that he died at about the age of 84 and that he never married. 
And so he had the opportunity to travel with Paul all during this time. So this is the man, Luke. This is the guy who we see who was writing this book. And like we just saw in the video, he wrote both Luke and the book of Acts. The second thing I want us to see is not only who is Luke, but how does he order this book? And we can look at this a few different ways. Uh, and we can see here that a lot of this parallels and overlaps. Um, but a lot of this, there's kind of a break at, right in the middle towards the end of chapter 9. And so for the next few months, we're actually going to be looking at Luke chapter 1 through chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at it through the end of November. And so if you're like, okay, we're going to keep going. Well, at the very end of November, we're going to start an Advent series. But we're going to pick back up with the very end of chapter 9, chapter 10, through the end of the book next year, Lord willing. But here's how Luke orders his gospel. First of all, he orders it chronologically. You can see there, he begins in the first couple of chapters, uh, today and the next two weeks, before Jesus' birth, all the way up to the age of 12. Then he begins Jesus' public ministry for a few chapters, and that's where we're actually going to break. See that break there right in chapter 9. Then for several chapters, he trains the disciples, he teaches on the kingdom. And then lastly, we see Christ's betrayal, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. But not only does he categorize it and organize it chronologically, but he also organizes it geographically. And so as we're going through, and this is where maybe you can use maps. Remember when Bibles used to have maps in them, or now we have Google, it's amazing, you can look these up, look at ancient maps. Um, But he first these first nine chapters, so between now and the end of the year, Jesus is going to be all around Galilee, all around his hometown. Then he's going to travel to Jerusalem. Remember, during that time, he's training and teaching his disciples. And then the last several chapters, he's actually going to be there in Jerusalem where Christ is going to die. So he organizes it chronologically. Here's the sequence of events. He organizes it geographically. He organizes it dramatically. So there are two main parts to that. He organizes it by the height of Christ's popularity. So Jesus coming into being known, his recognition. Again, where does that end? Chapter 9. We see it there. But then we see his opposition and rejection. Walking all the way, going back to Jerusalem to where he is eventually crucified and killed. The last way that we see this chronologically, geographically, dramatically, but the last way that we see the way that Luke orders his gospel is theologically. And the other ones are important. They're interesting to note. This one is the most important. And we see here he breaks it up a couple different ways. Again, we see these first nine chapters, he talks about Jesus as prophet and Jesus as, as priest, we see in the first six chapters, Jesus is the prophet, and then he takes a little bit of a hiatus, Jesus as the priest, transfiguration, uh, typing back to the Old Testament. Then he again picks up with that Jesus as prophet, training and teaching his apostles, the, the disciples. Then we finish with Jesus as king. He has to usher in his kingdom by being killed for the sake of us, for the sake of his servants. So Luke orders his gospel in these four ways, okay? So that's kind of where we're going. The next question I want to answer is, obviously, why did Luke write this book? So this is where we're going to look at chapter 1, these first four verses that we just read a few minutes ago. So go to Luke chapter 1 with me, if you would. And Luke begins his book in this way. And this is important for us to note, by the way. The very beginning of any movie or show or a book is important for knowing what the movie or show or book is going to be about. I love to watch documentaries. If you know me, me and my wife, that's mostly what we watch. And so a lot of times as we even watch a show, my wife will go, is this, is this based on real events? Is this based on a true story? And that's really important to the beginning of a movie or a show. 
to know that this is, this is based in reality. Now, if they had put based on a true story before a, a movie like Jurassic Park, it, it would affect the way that we watch that movie. You'd be like, man, okay. If they put that before a show like The Walking Dead, we would not be just meandering in here this morning without being equipped with knives or hatchets. And so those, those things affect the way that we live. And so those, that, that little intro is incredibly important, okay? So we have to look at these verses knowing, okay, this is setting us up for the rest of the book. So like Caleb just read, we see here in, in, the, in the very beginning of, of Luke's gospel, he says, and as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished for us. Now, notice what Luke doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm going to write this because my version of events is going to be better. He doesn't say, these guys didn't really know what they were talking about, so you're about to get the real story. No, he says, many have gone before. I'm just adding to this. Now, we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call, and John, we call those the Gospels, the story of Jesus. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call those the synoptic Gospels. Everybody say synoptic all right, good job. You are still awake. Fantastic. So synoptic is a word that's made up of, of two parts. Syn, S-Y-N, means the same. So if you want to sync something, your phone or to Dropbox or something like that, you're saying make these two things the same. And optic obviously means to see. So if you go to optician, I guess, uh, that's where you go. Uh, you, you go there and they work on your eyes. And so w- when we say the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are looking at the same story of Christ and his work, but they're looking at it from different vantage points. And we're going to see in Luke, not everything is the exact same. And when we think about Luke, Matthew and Mark are kind of like, they're kind of like Fox News and CNN. Okay? They're going to give you mainly the same story, just maybe altered a little bit from each other, depending on their perspective, okay? depending on their audience. And you watch one and not the other. But Luke comes in kind of as BBC. It's going to maybe touch on some of the information, but with all this other different perspective. Same information, but a very different perspective. And so in relation to Matthew and Mark, Luke is, is pretty different But all together, all three of those are very different from John. So they're all synoptic gospels. So he says, I'm coming to give you this other perspective. It's not better. It's not the best. He, in fact, uses Mark as a reference point. And Mark was probably the first gospel written. Historically, we would say that Mark was the first gospel written. And so Matthew and Luke especially use that to get some of their information. So he says, many have gone before. He says, uh, the things that have been accomplished among us. Now, now notice that, that word accomplished, we saw it in the video, but that word literally means to be fulfilled. So he's saying, we, we've written about, you've heard about Jesus coming and fulfilling the Old Testament. If we see nothing else this morning, I want us to see that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And so especially through these first couple of chapters, Luke is saying, you've heard about these things from the Old Testament. You've heard about this birth. You've even heard about John the Baptist. You've heard about this Messiah who is coming. And Luke is saying, yes, God keeps his promises. These are the things that you've heard about. I'm writing these things down. These things have been accomplished. This is God's plan from the very beginning. And from the very beginning, we see the working of God, but that affects how we live today. That's what he's saying. I'm going to write these things down. Verse number two, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world have delivered them to us. 
Now, now notice he says they deliver them to us. So again, he's writing from a Gentile, not a Jewish perspective. And so he's saying the news of Christ has come not just to the Jews, but it has now made its way to the Gentiles. This is for the world. These things are being accomplished for the sake of those who are close to Christ and for the sake of those who are far away. These things have been accomplished for us. Now, the, the, the thing that's important to notice about us, we also have to consider the context for uh, when Luke was writing. Luke was probably written in about 62 AD. Okay? So that means this is when things are starting to heat up. Nero is about to come onto the scene. Things are starting to get really bad for believers there in the first century. And so with that, Luke says, I'm going to write some of these things down. Now, typically, and if you, you can look at Plato and Socrates, they would say the most reliable source of information was not the written word. For us, we say, oh, I heard somebody say this. Oh, I heard this. But historically, for thousands of years, the most reliable source was oral tradition. And they would say, even according to secular sources, they would say the reason is because you can look at someone and tell if they're lying to you or not. And this oral tradition, it would, you'd tell everybody about it. You'd, and so there was just common knowledge, and it wouldn't change because it was so important. So he says, these things have been accomplished to us. I want to write these things down. And so we see Luke writing both a prequel and a sequel. We see Luke and Acts. He's writing about Jesus. He's writing about the church. He's writing about Christ's work. He's writing about the Spirit's work. Luke, by the way, Luke and Acts together is the largest New Testament contribution. So when he says, man, I want to write a detailed, orderly account, we're going to see that in a second. Luke and Acts make up uh, most of the New Testament, or not most of the New Testament, uh, by and large, most of the story of what Jesus did in the early church in the New Testament. Now, Paul wrote 13 books. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. But by word count, Luke wrote the most of the New Testament of any author. So that's important for us to know. This is, this is one of the most important pieces of antiquity. But he says, all these things have been accomplished for us, to us, through us. Verse number three, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely. Now notice he says, he followed these things. In other words, that means he investigated these things. He, he went to the shepherds. He said, let me go find these people. And this took years for him to research. Luke was not just a medical doctor, but he was a historian. He was an investigative journalist. He was basically Indiana Jones of this time. He says, I want to try to figure out all the, all the secrets. I want to go talk to all these people. I want to talk to the shepherds who say they heard the angels. I want to go talk to Jesus' mother, Mary. I want, I want to hear her account of the way that Jesus was raised. I want to go talk to, the, to the, those who were healed, to the guy who couldn't walk, and now he can, to the guy who couldn't see, but now he can. I want to go talk to the little girl who is dead and now she's been made alive. That's what Luke was going around. He says, I was investigating these things. I want to go to the little boy who all he had was a Lunchable and it fed over 5,000 people. He says, I want to go talk to that boy and be like, bro, what were the ingredients in that meal? He says, I investigated all of these things. So we know this is reliable. He investigated these things closely. In other words, he investigated them for accuracy's sake. He looked hard at the details. He did not want this account to be wrong. He wanted it to be accurate. And again, consider the context of this. You have tyrants pressing in to the early church. You have those who are they're about to be opposed. And so for the early church, the veracity, the truthfulness of their claims was incredibly important because he says, if you're going to sacrifice your life on something, it had better be true. So he's writing this down for the sake of the early believers. He's writing this down for the sake of us. He says he investigated these things 
closely. And then right there in the middle of verse number three, he wrote an orderly account for us. In other words, he wrote this in sequence. He wrote this one event after the other. And we just saw that. That's important to Luke, and so it should be important to us. He wrote, he investigated closely. He wrote an orderly account of these things. Another translation, by the way, of that word orderly, which I think is really important, it, it, it means to illuminate. It means to make something beautiful. So he, doesn't, he didn't just write and say, here are the facts. All right, I'm done. Black and white. He wants to write in a beautiful way, not in a way to say, okay, the information is true or the information is not. He wants to write in a way to compel us to believe. He wants to write in a way so that our lives are based on something not just factually correct, but magnificently beautiful. He says, so I'm going to write these things in an orderly way. Now notice right there at the end of verse number three, we see this other character, this guy, Theophilus. Now, Theophilus, uh, it literally means a friend or a lover of God. But, but notice the little um, adjective that he puts right before that. He says, uh, most excellent Theophilus. This was probably a leader in Caesar's palace. That was a, de a designation that was reserved for somebody who was really high up in the nation. And so we have Theophilus here who has become a Christian because he heard about the good news of Jesus. He was also a Gentile. He was, he was a Roman, probably a Roman soldier, really high up. And Luke says, I want to write all these things down for you so that you may believe. Because Theophilus, you're going to begin hearing these things. And it's not just a matter of, yeah, I think I'll believe that and let me move on with my life. Luke is writing to Theophilus because if these things are true, then it's going to mean everything for Theophilus. It's going to mean his standing in Caesar's army. It's going to mean his job and is potentially going to mean his life. And so Luke wants to get these things right. And he says, Theophilus, I'm writing this to you so that you may know, so that you can know that the miracles were real, so that you can know that the healings were real, so that you can know Jesus was actually dead, that he was actually raised to life, that he actually did ascend to the right hand of the Father. So he's looking at at both this, this friend and lover of God, he's also looking forward and he knows that there are going to be others who say, yes, I love God. Yes, I want to believe in God. And he's saying, don't be compelled. Don't, don't be compelled just to make a decision. Don't just be compelled to determine the facts. But he's saying, be compelled so that you can embrace this truth with certainty. Now notice in verse number four, Right there at the end, he says, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, in our English translation, if yours is like mine, it puts certainty towards the beginning of that verse. But in the Greek, certainty is actually the last word. And we saw this when we were looking at some of the Psalms. The last word is incredibly important in the Hebrew and same thing in the Greek. And so whatever the last word of that phrase is, which verses one through four, if you notice, is one big long sentence. It's just like this constant run-on sentence with these gerund clauses and these prepositional phrases. And that's important because he finishes in the Greek with the word certainty. And that means that's the point of that sentence. It is the most important word. Whatever the last word is in the Greek sentence is the most important word. And so Luke is saying, I want to write this for the point of certainty. Now Luke doesn't just say, hey, let me begin a letter and just see where this thing ends up. No, Luke writes this letter with many things in mind. The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, but also the sufferings of Paul, the death of Paul, 
those in the early church who were persecuted. And so Paul, and so Luke writes this to Theophilus with all of that in view, hoping to convince him and compel him, not just to make a decision, but to embrace this truth with certainty. The last question I want us to answer this morning. So we can look here and say, okay, we embrace the certainty, but how does Luke impact our lives? And I think we see here just from these verses, it impacts our lives in a few ways. The first way that Luke impacts our lives is that history is the fulfillment of God's plan. History is the fulfillment of God's plan. Luke says it even right here. Many have have undertaken this work. They've compelled a narrative that's been accomplished among us. From the beginning, History is walking through the corridors of God's plan. Nothing happens in contradiction to that plan. Also, that does not mean that humans have no culpability. Because we're going to see later, Luke actually blames the Romans. He blames uh, the the Jewish leaders for putting Jesus to death. And so Luke doesn't say, ah, well, it was just God's plan, so I guess they had to. He says, no, these were evil, wicked men, but it's still part of God's plan Luke says, don't place your agenda above the word of God. Here he says there's certainty. And we, see that we saw it right there in verse number two. So as we come to the scriptures, we don't take our agenda, our perspective, and say, let me see if the Bible lines up with what I believe. We say, do I believe what lines up with the scriptures? How else does Luke impact our lives? We should be committed to bringing others to the knowledge of the truth. Luke writes this as being the recipient of God's grace through Paul, who is the recipient of God's grace through the early church, through Jesus himself appearing to Paul. And Luke writes this to Theophilus and to those who say they love Jesus for the sake of our certainty, for the transformation of our lives. And so I would encourage you, we're going to look at chapters one through nine, but, but we also have some resources for you that we want to make available because I think about this as a, as a three-legged stool. Um, this, the stool is made up of, of personal study, So I would encourage you to read through Luke. It doesn't take a ton of time to read through Luke. If you're a relatively slow reader, I put the words into a word count machine this week. It'll take you just under two hours to read through Luke. But if you were to read Luke chapter 1 through 9, it would take you well less than about 45 minutes to read through Luke chapter 1 through 9. I would encourage you, read through it several times over the next few months. There's personal study. Secondly, we're going to be going through this on Sunday mornings. And so be prepared. Be here. If you miss a Sunday, listen to the podcast. Walk through this with us so you get the whole picture. But then thirdly, we're to walk through this together in smaller groups of people. Be part of a life group as we walk together learning about how do we apply these truths of Scripture. So we have some resources for you. One was right there in your chair. Uh, I'm not making all of these resources available just because it's, it would become financially a burden for the church to take on. Uh, but one of the ones that we have right there is the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and so we have one of these for each adult in the room. Or if, if you're a student or child, if you want to take notes, I've still got notes from when my dad went through Romans in the early 90s. No joke. I've got them in my office. And so I think it's great for kids to take notes. Uh, and I was a kid still in the early 90s. So we have, we have that Luke journal there for you. That's for you. Take one of those, one for each adult. If you need more, I've got a whole other case of them. That's, that's for free. That's our gift to you because we want you to walk through Luke with us. Uh, one of the other resources we have is a book by Mike McKinley, and it's actually Luke 1 through 12. But this is a resource that I'm recommending if you want to go a little more in depth to Luke. This is a, a, not a daily devotional, but it's more of a weekly every couple of weeks. It's walking through some of these passages with us. And it's a way to apply these both to your life group, to your family, but that's actually available in our bookstore for 10 bucks. And so if we run out there on Amazon for a little bit more than that, but that's a good other, hey, let me, let me know a little more about Luke. 
that book by Mike McKinley, incredibly accessible. If you want to go a little bit deeper into Luke, uh, this is a commentary that I'm using. This is by a guy named R.C. Sproul. This is probably 20 bucks on Amazon. Uh, again, for being an in-depth, uh, it's more of an expository commentary, but incredibly accessible. And so grab that. Uh, we're not selling this because I didn't know how many people would want uh, a little more of an in-depth study. That's, that's pretty in-depth. He looks more at the words there, but he's also looking at uh, what are the turns of phrase and what is... Now, again, as, as an expository commentary, he's saying, what's the main point of this passage? And he's digging a little more into the historical. So that's a little bit deeper, that R.C. Sproul commentary. I'll leave these up here on the stage afterwards. If you want to come look at them, please leave them because I had to buy these. And then if you have kids, uh, I started going through this with my boys. It's called The Dig. Uh, and this is actually Luke Volume 1. And this takes you through about the first half. Again, this is available on Amazon for maybe 12, 15, 20 bucks, something like that. Uh, and this goes through. It has memory verses for your kids. Each, uh, each devotional is about a page long. It's not that long. It's interactive for questions, but that's called The Dig. And I would encourage you, pick up one, two, all of these resources. We're going to be going through Luke for a while. And so uh, walk through that with us. Our goal is that we should be committed to bring others to the knowledge of the truth. This is not just for you as an individual. This is for our church body. So walk through Luke with us. The last answer there for answering this question, why is Luke important to us? Why does it impact our lives? Because the church that neglects systematic catechetical teaching has itself to blame for its waning strength. Now, this has been sitting on the screen for a second, and you're like, I'm still not sure what that means. Here's what that means. It, in order for us to be strengthened as the people of God, we must understand the truth of who God is. So there, there are two different types of history. I wasn't planning on going into all the different histories, but there's, or theology, but there's biblical theology, which looks at the, the meta-narrative of Scripture. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we see that from the very beginning until Revelation. There's another way of looking at Scripture. There's this other theology, primary theological system, and it's called systematic theology. And it looks at the truths of Scripture. So there's a, a doctrine of salvation, or there's a doctrine of angels, or a doctrine of demons, or uh, a doctrine of regeneration. There are all those different kinds of things. That's systematic theology. But I wouldn't say so you're like, okay, so which one do we pick? I would say we pick both of those things. There must be some way that we are strategically, systematically categorizing our, our children. And what that means is we're saying, learn these things, respond with these answers to these questions. My kids ask me all the time about cars. We, if you ride down the road with me for, for 30 minutes, we're going to play 100 different car games, right? And, and, and that's because for you, hey, what kind of car is that? Oh, that's a Cadillac. Oh, what kind of car is that? Oh, that's a Chevy. And, and they've looked and they've figured out these things. They've figured out these categories for cars. Are we doing that with our kids and saying, these are our categories for knowing about God? Are we systematically teaching them and bringing them up in the truth of Scripture? We, I mean, we use different books at home right now. We're using a book, I think it's by Marty Mikowski, called Theology. So they took the word theology and broke it down to theology. And it looks at the, the doctrines for children. So do that. And the church that doesn't do that, we have but ourselves to blame for that. That's what that means. And so we want to walk through this, but Luke tells us that. It's important for us to know. You're going to like Luke if you're young. I'm not just saying that because it's family worship, but, but Luke is the only gospel that talks about Jesus as a young child. You're going to like Luke if you're a woman, because Luke spends more time talking about the women that are engaged in the story of Jesus than any other. We learn more about Mary and Martha, and especially contrary to historical writings. You're going to like Luke if you're short, 
because, Jesus, because Luke is the only story that talks about Zacchaeus. And you're really going to like Luke if you're short and you like to climb trees. But you're also going to like Luke if you're a hippie. Because Jesus speaks to the crowds, and he's always got these guys who are just, hey, you know, I'll just follow Jesus. You know, like, the, like these bands, uh, uh, like the Grateful Dead. It's kind of like that. So he's just like, hey, crowd, y'all, come on. Let's just move around the country and sleep in tents. But not only a hippie, but you're going to like Luke if you're a hipster. Because uh, Luke includes a lot of Jesus' parables and kind of like poems and, and the artsy-fartsy kind of stuff. That's how Luke writes. He writes about these stories. You're going to like Luke if you're rich. Because Luke was probably pretty wealthy and he had resources. And you're going to like Luke if you're poor because he spends more time talking about the poor than any other book. You're going to like Luke if you enjoy miracles and the miraculous things because he has more miracles recorded in his book than any other gospel. He also has a lot of miracles that don't appear anywhere else in the other gospels. But here's what I want us to see more than anything else is that God keeps his promises. We can rest and remain assured in that. So if you approach Luke and you're like, man, I got all the answers. Man, praise God. I did too until I I started studying the first four verses of Luke. (laughs) I I tell folks, the more education that I get, and I want to go, I mean, I said a couple, I want to go get a PhD. The more education that I get, the dumber I feel. Because I'm like, man, there's there's even more out there. (laughs) That's the way I feel. When I was 27, I had it all figured out. At 37, I'm just like, ah, I don't even know why I try. So if that's how you approach the scriptures, man, just know that, that make sure what you know is the scriptures. And if you're like, man, I'm, I'm really struggling with my faith. I struggle with a lot of doubt. Good. The book of Luke is for you because God keeps his promises. A few weeks ago, uh, we were in Florida and uh, we went to Discovery Cove. And uh, the day we were there, uh, my oldest, Axel, he got sick and he wasn't feeling great. So we had to uh, go back to the hotel room, and it was just a, it was just a, a long day. And it was my wife's lifelong dream to go to Discovery Cove and swim with the dolphins, and so we did. And so uh, that night, though, just a long day. I went to Moe's that night, I got some food. We're just exhausted. Long day. And uh, I, I lay in, or I, I put Kings to my youngest one to bed. And uh, he, he's sitting right here. He asked me if I was going to tell a story about him this morning, and uh, he said I could. So I didn't ask Axel, but I, so I apologize. But um, I put Kings down to bed. I'm, I'm about to go crash. It's like 9 o'clock, 9.30. Got a sick kid. Been outside in the sun all day. Uh, you know, just exhausted. So I'm about to go lay down in bed and just pass out. So as I'm walking to, the bed, to my bed, Kingston says, Daddy, can you come lay down with me? And I thought, man, I do not want to do that right now. I am exhausted. The last thing I want to do is give more of myself. I don't have anything else to give emotionally. I don't have any more time. I don't have any more money. Like, I'm just, I'm out. I'm depleted. All of my resources are depleted. So I went and laid down with Kingston, of course. And he curled up and he grabbed my arm and it was sweet. And I thought, man, isn't it nice to know that the father does not even have the option of telling us no? I had the option of saying, you know what, King? I'm exhausted, bro. Peace out. See you in the morning. But our Heavenly Father, if we approach Him and want to know Him more based on His character, not based on who we are, cannot say no to us. He will not say no to us 
because he loves us with a love that will never give up, a love that we cannot even comprehend, a love that keeps his promises. I've made a lot of promises in my life. I've broken a lot of promises. I've been promised a lot of things in life, and a lot of those promises have been broken. But our Heavenly Father, because of who he is, if we approach him, we get to know more and more about him. Like, man, that's really good news. Here's even better news. Even in the midst of that, the Father knows you intimately. As we preach the Father, as we preach his word, we get to know the Father, and the Father gets to know us. Even in spite of who you are, God still loves you. And if you are in Christ, he still accepts you as his child. And he says, come to me. Come and curl my arms. Come spend time with me. That's what we get to do. That's what we get to do as we walk through Luke. And that's really encouraging to me. And I'm excited to go through that with you. One of the promises that God has made from the very beginning of time is that he would know us, that he would be known by us, that he would spend time with us, that the finished work of Christ is sufficient. We see that all the way from the beginning because in, in the book of Genesis, like we just we saw in the video a few minutes ago, but in Genesis, God says, here's the promise that I'm going to make to you. I'm going to be with you. Well, Adam and Eve, a few minutes later, they break that promise in Genesis chapter 3, and they turn and they rebel against him. But what does God do? He says, I still am going to promise to be with you. So then they keep turning and rebelling. They keep running to the point where they are slaves in Egypt. What does God do? Does he say, you know what? Forget this mess. I am sick of y'all being rebels. No. God says, I still want to be with you. I still want to know you. I still want you to know me. So God sends Moses. And Moses goes to the Pharaoh and he says, he says, let God's people go. And all these plagues come in. But the 10th plague is the death of the firstborn for every single family in the whole country, except for those who take the blood of a spotless lamb and put it over their doorpost. And when the Spirit of God comes by those houses, the Spirit passes over and he spares his people who have been faithful, who have known him and who have obeyed him. We have right there the very first Passover. And not one of those children did God say, you know what, I promised something, but I'm actually not going to do that. His promises came to completion. That is the God that we worship. And the same is true through the, old, the whole Old Testament. The same is true in every single account of the New Testament. God has been faithful to complete every one of his promises. And so in the same way that that we see the, the body that was broken in a lamb and the blood that was shed, and it represents the promise of God. We know that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was poured out so that we could be in a relationship with God, so that God could be accurate in his promises. So this morning we have this meal that's called communion, and this comes from the Passover. There, there's bread that's up here in these bowls, and there's juice that is in these bowls. We remember the promise of God in spite of who we are. And that's really good news for us this morning. So I would encourage you, family, as we participate in this meal that we call communion, we can know Christ, but we can be known by Christ. Let's be reminded of that. Let's be reminded of the promise that he keeps perfectly because of Christ's sacrifice.